The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report is out now. Search ey.com slash ie slash CEO and discover the key topics on the minds of Ireland's leading CEOs. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Business podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. In this week's podcast, I'm joined by Seamus Coffey, economist at UCC, and Tom McDonnell, co-director of the Nevin Economic Institute, to discuss this week's summer economic statement, which is an increasingly important part of the budget in recent years, where the Minister for Finance and the Minister for Public Spending outline their expectations for the public finances and how much money is going to be available on Budget Day. And this year, we're told there is a very significant amount of £6.7 Though, of course, a fair amount of that is already allocated. Seamus Coffey, do you think broadly that uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath have got the balance right in terms of the amount of money that they're, they're planning to spend on Budget Day and the outlook for the public finances? Yeah, I think in general terms, at least the approach that has been set out in the summer economic statement seems appropriate. Whether the actual outcome when we get to the actual budget uh, matches that remains to be seen and, and there's always detail that's worth looking at. But I think the general approach of like what it is that should be taken into account when you're setting the broad parameters for fiscal policy and, and I suppose at a headline level you're looking at sort of the expectations of growth or what the, the possibility or potential growth rate might be and, infl- and inflation. And clearly for the last number of years, it's been growth has sort of been the dominant one with inflation in the background. And now that has reversed, uh, we likely have downgraded slightly our expectations of growth. But inflation, as measured, is clearly much, much higher. And I think it, it's it's right in that instance that um, there is a, a change to the plan that was set out 12 months ago, which was based on very benign inflation forecasts. I look back at last year's budget and I think for most years they had inflation forecasts of less than 2%. So clearly we're in a very different environment now and it is absolutely right that that be taken into consideration. If you have fiscal rules or spending rules, you don't want them to be rigid. You don't want them to be based sort of on arbitrary numbers. You want them actually to be um, reactive. Uh, so I think the broad approach uh, of taking into account the inflation we're seeing is absolutely correct. Uh, but whether the detail and and the precise nature of what's done follows true and that remains to be seen. But I think there is merit in the broad approach that's been taken. Seamus, the, the spin or the story we were told is that the 5% spending uh, limit is being abandoned, but only for one year. Do you think that's credible? Is it gone, gone now? It, it's hard to know. Like, is 5% appropriate? Like, like there's, there's no real basis for saying 5% is appropriate in all and every year. I, I think, again, if you go back to last year, it, the, the, the budget did set out a medium term fiscal plan that had 5% spending growth out, out to 2025. But that was on the basis of sort of expected growth of around 3% per annum and inflation of around 2% per annum. And in that environment, 5% is more than appropriate. It, it's the right thing to do. But if the growth prospects change or the inflation prospects change and you have this uh, sort of spending framework based on growth and inflation, well, then your numbers should change. Uh, so I think it's right that it has been adaptive. What would be the appropriate number for next year? I don't know. It depends on uh, what's happened to inflation. Uh, it might be that 5% is appropriate. But I don't think we should be have a rigid sort of rule that 5% is the right way to go. Um, it, it should be adaptive uh, and it should reflect what we know at the time. Um, and I don't think the government ever fully... Uh, bound their arms but with the 5%. Like it really was the projections they set out last year and they said it should be possible to maintain spending growth at 5% over the medium term. Uh, what I would actually formally put it into a rule, it wasn't passed by legislation, uh, so it is pretty easy to change. So they're moving away from it, yes, this year 
Um, but it's very hard to know whether 5% would be appropriate next year. We should do what is right, uh, not what some arbitrary number tells us. Okay, uh, Tom McDonald, what's what's your view on the summer statement and, and the balance that uh, the ministers have suggested that they're going to strike for next year? Yeah, I, I agree with Seamus. I think the broad fiscal stance is is appropriate. I think I think it is good and useful to have something like a five percent rule, but they should spell out exactly why it's five percent. And as Seamus says, it's based upon nominal GDP growth plus uh, plus inflation. So, like over the longer term, that number is going to decline a little bit because growth is going to be lower um, uh, just as the as the population ages. So. Going up to six and a half percent for for this budget is completely appropriate given the inflation context. And look, my own view is that we're probably going to have inflation well in excess of two percent next year as well, but maybe not necessarily for twenty twenty four. So I think it, it's true we should wait till next year's summer economic statement before making a decision as to what's appropriate in terms of spending growth, net spending growth, net of revenue measures, for example. So I think broadly speaking. The way that it's being done, have a kind of an anchor, which is which is around five percent now, maybe four and a half percent, four percent in the future, but have that flexibility built in to respond to exogenous shocks, and that's what this is, on what they will describe as a once-off basis. But the reality is that flexibility will continue to be there. So there's always going to be flexibility up and down here, and, and I think that's that's broadly appropriate. And six and a half percent is not that far from five percent, so it is quite it is quite. Uh, reasonable from 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 that perspective, clearly it's not going to be enough to deal with the cost of living issues for all house households, and and and, and as Seamus says, that's where uh, the detail of the now September budget is going to be very very interesting in terms of which groups are uh, prioritised for for protection. Yeah, I mean, Tom, there was uh, I know six point seven sounds like a big number, and and it is a big number, uh, but a lot of that money is already allocated. Do you think there's an, enough leeway there to address the kind of key challenges now? We've a public sector pay bill. We've a lot of demands on welfare, a lot of demands on you know increasing pensions for next year. Talk of an income tax package. It could be eaten up fairly quickly, couldn't it? Oh, it will be eaten up very, very quickly. In fact, the vast majority of the budget every year is already baked in. And indeed, of that 6.75 billion, 3 billion of it is, is for existing levels of services. Actually, we're really playing with about a little under four billion, and that includes the tax package. And look, doing anything on the tax side is is going to be very expensive in terms of moving moving bands. That 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 billion will run, will run out very quickly if that's what they choose to do. And then and that and that just leaves you for leaves you on less than three billion on the spending side. And look, many groups have pointed out the need to to uh, in, index uh, or, or benchmark uh, welfare rates and. That's certainly a policy option, which I think should be considered, but that's going to be very expensive and that money is going to run out very, very quickly. And then obviously the public sector pay deal, compensation for the workers, there's always going to be some element of pay increase every every year. Normally it would be linked to some measure of productivity plus inflation. Obviously that would take you to a very high figure in 2023, unlikely to be met, but we know that every percentage point increase is about 200, 250 million. So again, that's going to eat into it very quickly. And then, of course, you've got this this uh, need to perhaps enhance the social wage. So uh, by having a, a greater state intervention in subsidization of childcare costs, for example, uh, or uh, enhancing the public transport subsidy, or yeah, helping with education costs or, or healthcare costs, those type of measures that might actually 
act to dampen inflation to a certain extent and, and reduce cost of living and are in the government's gift. But all that money, it's going to run out very, very quickly. And so there's going to have, be some very, very difficult choices made in September. And a lot of people will be very unhappy. Do you think, Tom, there's enough money set aside for income tax cuts or too much money set aside for income tax? I know, I know we're probably talking about we're talking about indexing the system for inflation rather than actually making people better off. But but I guess there are choices. Where where do you stand on that? Yeah, well, well I think let's say inflation is 7%, 7.5% perhaps uh, in 2022, and then maybe another 3.5%, 4% in 2023. Obviously, there's a great deal of, a great deal of uh, assumption baked into that. But uh, to index that would be enormously expensive um, and would leave very little scope for anything else on the taxation side. Now, certainly they can unwind some, some existing tax measures such as helped buy the 9% VAT rate and so forth and find additional revenues perhaps by eating into tax expenditures. And of course, the Tax Commission uh, report may have landed uh, in advance of the budget and there may be some ideas that, that they may wish to pursue there and that will open up extra space on, on the taxation or indeed potentially the spending side. But in terms of this particular cost, cost of living crisis, I think the emphasis for 2023 ought to be on uh, protecting households from falling into poverty and deprivation. And for me, therefore, the priority ought to be on lower income households. Savings rates uh, were at record highs uh, during during the pandemic. Savings rates are still quite quite strong for the higher income households, let's say, and, 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 and even middle income households. And so it's not quite clear to me what the what the pressure is there that needs to be resolved in Budget 23 in terms of maybe some of those movements around the standard rate cutoff point, for example. Uh, I'm not, I don't find those arguments particularly compelling from, or if it's just about cost of living. I do accept there are, are, there are arguments for indexation over the medium term. Uh, I'm not denying that. But what I'm saying is maybe it doesn't need to be the, the immediate priority in Budget 23. Yeah, it's an interesting one. What's your view on that, Seamus? We've, uh, we've $1 billion in taxes and... Uh... Well, five five billion plus in spending, but as as Tom said, a lot of that is already allocated. What do you think of the balance there? And maybe start with the tax side. What should be done? Yeah, it's important to take into consideration both sides. Like like the government have have set out that they expect core spending, core exchequer spending, to rise, but by six and a half percent in twenty twenty three. In that move away from so the the five percent benchmark that that was set out last year. Of course, that's only one side. Uh, of the public finances. Like the government can use fiscal resources, yes, by spending more, but it can also use fiscal resources by reducing tax. So like, if you look at what might be considered policy spending um, for 2023, that's going to rise by more than, than 6.5%, uh, possibly maybe closer to 8%. And the government have announced that some of the spending uh, measures that will be in the budget at the end of September, they'll actually kick in in 2022. So, so the base will be higher. So like, if you were to say, well, what is the full effect of the announcements we get at the end of September? Uh, the policy spending could be 8 9%. So it actually is um, pretty rapid. And as you say, there is that balance between uh, the tax and the spending measures. And they are political choices. Uh, like it's a, a budget is clearly a, a political document. Uh, what can be done on the income tax side, as Tom says, it's probably quite limited. Um, but in terms of indexation, like we are seeing that that wage growth, wage inflation is lower than price inflation. Uh, so we're not necessarily seeing fiscal drag. We're not seeing people being dragged up uh, into higher effective average tax rates um, because they're being pulled into to higher bands. The impact that, that the impact people are feeling is the price inflation. Um, and that's a national thing. 
Um, most of the inflation we're seeing is driven by external factors. We are now spending hundreds of millions a month more as a country on energy imports. And there's only in the budget that, that can that can change that. The price of energy has gone up globally uh, and we are now having to pay that. What the budget can do is look at the distribution, as Thomas said, uh, and perhaps focus at uh, the lower end of the income distribution. So the budget can fix inflation, uh, but it can ad- address some of the, the distribution issues of it. Whether that means you do more or less on the tax or spending side, I'd say, is, is a political choice. I think we'll see a bit of everything. Um, but as in, in recent years, there probably will be, and it's possibly correct to see, more emphasis on the spending side. What about the issue of the standard rate tax plant? Uh, you know, the entry point at the higher level, Seamus, Leo Varadkar has been saying, on radio the last couple of days, look, it's not fair if people get a tax increase if the tax man has taken taken half of that. We need to increase the increase that. Uh, is that a legitimate target for this budget, given the pressures elsewhere? It's a legitimate target, but it's a political choice, um, yeah. uh, and it's where you think the the emphasis should be. Like we have a relatively progressive tax system, and that does mean that there are various bands in the income distribution where tax rates rise quite rapidly. And that is what a progressive tax system does. Now, where the points kick in, of course, is a choice. And you could have the top rate band kick in at a higher level. But it only makes a small change. If you increase the top rate band by €1,000, well, that's €1,000 within the range of income where people continue to pay 20% rather than moving up to the top rate. Above that, they'll continue to be taxed at the top rate. Uh, so if somebody gets an increase and they're already in the top rate band, they're going to continue to pay uh, the top rate of income tax. So, yes, it is an issue. Um, it is a choice. Uh, you can make a lot of it. I, I think uh, in the main people, um, at least with incomes relatively unchanged, are probably more concerned about the average tax rate. How much of their overall pay packet do they get to keep? Yes, the marginal tax rate is important and maybe it has an impact on labour supply decisions or whether you'll do more or less. Uh, but in the main, people probably look at, at their average tax rate. What's the difference between the top left-hand corner of the payslip yeah, uh, yeah. and the bottom right-hand corner? Absolutely. Uh, and that's probably where most of the, the focus of people lies. With increasing pressures, Ireland CEOs are working hard to navigate the rapidly evolving business landscape. The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report takes a deeper dive into the topics that are on the minds of Irish CEOs at the moment, and importantly, the issues that leaders should be paying attention to. Discover the key actions to consider as you seek to reshape the future of your organisation at ey.com slash ie slash CEO. Tom, give me two or three of your top spending interventions for this year. You know, you're Minister for Finance, you have to make choices, you can't have everything. I'm not asking you for a fully costed package here now, but give me uh, give me two or three things that you think <laughs> should definitely be there. Put you on the spot now. That should definitely be there. Well, I do think that there needs to be an increase in uh, basic welfare payments. Um, look, uh, obviously, 7% price inflation, probably slightly higher for, for low-income households and indeed pensioners. So I think some increase there. Is necessary. Obviously, there's a debate as to how how generous that, that that's going to be. And look, it is very expensive. Every five or 10, 10 euros you add on. Uh, so I think there needs to be something that gets you gets you close. Um, and I think for me that would be the priority because I, I would focus. On, I would look. Let's let's protect everyone here. And the way to do that is to is is to protect 
the the incomes of, of those households. You can uh, a second thing that I, I would like to see is some movement in terms of uh, looking at this kind of longer question. And we're always talking about fiscal sustainability over over a ten or twenty year period, and, and like part of that is about managing the climate transition. So I think it would be very helpful to look at perhaps increasing the subsidy for public transport. Uh, not not that expensive, but it, 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 it's consistent with those goals. It also helps to reduce the cost of living. So that seems like one of the few areas where, where there's a possible win-win. Obviously, this all costs. A third area, I would say, is something significant in terms of childcare costs. It's a major barrier to labour force participation for lone parents and second earners. It's, it's a very gendered issue. And, and I think it is genuinely difficult to manage the three goals of business viability, affordability for the household, and a decent wage and career for, for the worker. And I think there probably does need to be more significant intervention by the government there. So I suppose that would be three areas uh, that I would kind of emphasise as part of budget as part of budget 2023. Yeah, fair chance your wish list will be ticked off, I'd say there, uh, Tom, or in some form anyway, whether whether you're... Uh you'll be completely satisfied. Uh, hard to know how far they're going welfare. Seamus, I'm interested in picking up one other thing with you. The goose that's laying the golden egg for us is the corporation tax receipts and an extraordinary uh, increase, Seamus, in the last, in the first six months of this year. The Department of Finances has been warning about this. We've all been warning about this, that we can't keep relying on this, but it just keeps going. Um, what's your view on, on, on where we're heading on this and how we should handle it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the figures this year have been extraordinary. Like we've been commenting on sort of the growth of surge of corporation tax for six or seven years now. Um, it, it started back in 2015 uh, when corporation tax went from about four and a half billion uh, in 2014 to, to, to 6.8 billion in 2015. And we were all alarmed. This is a 50% increase in, in corporate tax. That's 6.8 billion. Oh, we're becoming hugely reliant on the sort of uncertain uh, tax revenues paid in the main by foreign companies uh, and mainly by US companies. And now we're at a situation where in the last 12 months, corporate tax revenues have been more than 18 billion euro. Like whoever's laying the golden egg is, is laying more and more of them. It has just become an enormous amount of money. Now, it is absolutely great to be getting it. It is much better to be collecting this money than not collecting it. Um, but it certainly does present a risk. Um, and the risk is that we just don't know what's going to happen. Like, one potential is that it just continues growing. Um, we, we just don't know uh, in what direction this will go or the alternative. Of course, the downside is that it could go in the other direction. All of this has happened outside of sort of domestic factors. There is no domestic factor you can set out that explains this surge in corporation tax. So it's driven by stuff that happens outside of the country. So it's not in our control. What are those factors? Well, you can look at maybe the, the profitability of some of the FDI companies that are here, their operations here. Again, that's determined by decisions in boardrooms uh, across the US. You can look at changes in US tax policy. We've no control over that. Like I think when the the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, was being sort of uh, put through Congress back in uh, 2017, the view was that the US needed to tidy up its tax code and get rid of some of the things like deferral and having companies um, placing huge amounts of profit in the likes of Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. I think the expectation the US would have been that as a result of this, the companies would have been writing big checks to the IRS. But maybe one thing we've seen is they haven't been writing the checks to Uncle Sam, they've been writing the checks to us. Um, it, we don't have the detail yet, but like given 18 billion euro collected, in the last 12 months. When the IRS worked through the figures for 2022, I think we're definitely going to see 
Ireland being the second largest recipient of corporate taxes from US multinationals in the world. Not per capita, not as a share of national income, just pure absolute number. Um, and an extraordinary for such a small country um, to be collecting such huge amounts of tax. Uh, and it really wasn't what our corporate tax regime was intended to do at all. It was intended to, to generate employment uh, and investment and provide factories and, and have jobs, which is, it is doing and maybe doing even more successfully now. But it was never designed to collect huge amounts of corporate taxes. The benefits to the government were to come in other forms of taxes and that employment. Uh, but now we've all this money. And it really, like the, the, the figures are almost beyond comprehension. 18 billion in 12 months. Uh, it's just staggering. One of the things that struck me, Seamus, in the briefing of the Department of Finance this week, officials were saying, they were referring to an IFAC estimate that a large part of this was, was unexplainable, as you have said there. And basically saying, well, the IFAC number may be a bit high, but broadly we agree with that. When we say unexplainable, what exactly do we mean? I mean, is it, does that mean that it's tax-driven planning or, uh, or, or, or what? Yeah, I think what we're trying to do, we're trying to explain it by domestic factors, by things that happen within our jurisdiction, where this is a tax that we are collecting. So what is it that explains it? Is it driven by productivity? Is it driven by profitability? Is it driven by um, the more standard features, you might think? would be driving um, tax revenues. But there's no domestic factors that can explain it. Um, now, clearly, because a lot of it is played by multinational companies and foreign companies, you have to look at those. And so when we say not a domestic factor, like clearly those companies have operations here. So it is driven by what they're doing in Ireland. Uh, but the decisions around that uh, aren't taken in Ireland. Uh, and I think that's the risk. Um so, like, when we say it's unexplainable, like, you're, you're, you're not looking at the money we're spending in the economy or different broad sectors within the Irish economy, domestic sectors. You're basically attributing it to, to the foreign sector. And again, because it's coming from that sector, and again, predominantly American companies, you're looking at the boardroom decisions that those companies make and maybe any tax changes uh, that the US Congress might be able to get through. But the, the possibility of tax changes seems remote at this stage. Uh, and possibly to become even more remote uh, after the midterm elections in, in November. So there's no great prospect of this going over a cliff edge. Um, the, 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 there's nothing on the horizon that suggests uh, a fall is imminent. But because it's been unexplainable, a fall is possible. Um, and I think um, the various sort of warnings that are being sounded uh, are appropriate. But again... Much, much better to be collecting this than not. Absolutely. What's your take on this, Tom? <laughs> well, I don't have much more to add there. I suppose I am um, a little bit more fearful that that this might go away, uh, not necessarily because of the changing decisions of those half dozen plus boardrooms. Um, I think I agree with Seamus, and I actually think that the BEPS process itself is unlikely to be fully realized and certainly won't be under uh, a Republican Congress. So I think momentum there will be very, very slow. In terms, I, I, I do have greater concerns about the, the fact that our corporation tax receipts and therefore our budgetary policy is so contingent upon the corporate performance of a very small number of firms, which which might have done particularly well during during the pandemic, given the, given the sectors they're in. And I suppose I, I would be a little bit concerned uh, 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 although I have no huge basis for this, that that some of that might unwind, and therefore, I, I I would be, I would be concerned that the government would, over the short to medium term, start to allocating a portion of that to a rainy day fund, or to some uh, to something like that. It could be something like the NPRF 
something that would perhaps automatically trigger during a recession uh, or, or something like that. Um, I would be concerned if it was baked into particularly current spending. Perhaps an element of capital spending could be could be associated with it, which would be wound down over time. But certainly, I think it's very risky to um, to, to to really be looking at our budget surplus, our modest surplus of 2022 and 2023, and not having this huge asterisk related to, to the to the uncertainty associated with the corporation tax receipts. I mean, I don't know if they're going to go, to go down, but I think it, it is reasonable to hedge against that risk and to, to start allocating a proportion of those receipts. Uh, to to something sequestered away. Maybe we can argue that we're in a rainy day at the moment in terms of budget 2023, but certainly having a plan over the next three, three to five years to, to start putting more and more of that money away uh, would be very wise. Yeah, I think you're right there. Politically, Tom, if the government suggests the suggested setting up a rainy day fund, uh, I think the opposition will be on their feet uh, immediately into Dáil saying it's pouring already spend the money but nonetheless yeah and, and look obviously the natural thing in a few years ago would have been put it into yeah. housing and so forth but I would say that is the role of general taxation uh, or, or regular sure. general general taxation and you can certainly do that I mean it's a political choice it's whether you spend 30, 35, 40 or 45 percent of your national income on uh, you know government spending of, of various types there's also other ways you can do it you can set up semi-states and you can have it you can have it self-funding with, with cost rental. There's a lot of ways that this can be done. Uh, and look, there's a lot of rainy days out there. But but ultimately, that's about political choices, about the, the long-run revenue sufficiency. Um, I don't see necessarily that there has to be um, you know, an either-or here. Okay. Corporation tax receipts come with a caveat. They come with an asterisk. And we should just be, we should be concerned about that and looking at, at using it at, at, in at least a counter-cyclical manner and certainly not baking it in. When times are good. And remember, our employment rates are very high at the moment. Uh, uh, the economy is technically in, in a very strong position. So while we do have a very high inflation and we do need to offset some of those cost of living issues now, the likelihood is that long run, long, our long, long run unemployment rate is probably higher than where it is at the moment. Think about that in terms of structural deficits. I throw one of the ones at you, Tom. Um, the Taoiseach was out during the week saying that he agreed with his backbench colleagues that the state pension age should remain at 66. Uh, while a decision still has to be made by cabinet, etc., etc., it does seem like the wind is only blowing one way on this one. Can we afford it? Well, I, I, I think you're right that the, probably the, the decision clearly has been made. I, I don't think the Taoiseach would be saying that as openly as he has unless that decision has been made. And look, obviously, Seamus's Pension Commission made a different recommendation. They, they had four options about how to do that. Two, uh, two, I think, involved increasing the, pe- the pension age, correct, Seamus? Correct. And two, and two didn't. One, one of, and then two of them had an exchequer contribution and two didn't. Um, so look, obviously, this is a political choice. Uh, again, it, 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 what I would say is, uh, I mean, people talk about this as it's about PRSI increases versus, say, pension age. But that third component is in there too, the, the exchequer funding. So, uh, I mean, what I would say is, um, the sustainability of the pension has to be seen within the context of the overall tax and welfare system. So all sources of revenue coming into government, whether it be from property taxes, consumption taxes, not, so not just not just labour taxes overall. I agree that there's obviously a concern if you increase PRSI, it can have an impact on labour force participation, on whether businesses hire people. 
Um, and look, there, there, is, there is an important goal here in terms of keeping marginal effective tax rates low, uh, particularly for low, uh, for households which might have marginal uh, connection to the labour market. Personally, I wouldn't oversell uh, the damage that would be done by a one or a two percentage point, an additional one or two percentage point increase in, in PRSI over, over a 10 or 20 year period. Um, but I, I would agree that, you know, focusing on labour taxes to increase is probably not uh, a positive thing in, t- in terms of employment rates. Uh, and therefore, if one is to keep the pension age where it is, that means you're going to have to draw attention to things like tax expenditures and other forms of uh, tax increases over a 10, 15, 20 year period. And that's the political choice that's there. Broadly, you're, you, you would argue for keeping it at 66? What I would say is, look, it is ultimately a political choice. Obviously, there is a fiscal cost associated with it. And what I would say is I would be broadly in favour of uh, changing employment contracts to uh, to uh, to um, to align with whatever, whatever the pension age would be and that we would make it as easy as possible and as, as attractive as possible to encourage people to stay in work for as long as they're able to do so, which can include things like uh, working at home, flexible and declining hours over a multi over a multi year period. I do, I think we need to have a larger a larger conversation about the pension age around the future of work as well, uh, and how we manage that over the, over a twenty thirty year period. Our, our our working age ratio is going to decline and dramatically. I think Seamus's report showed that very very uh, decisively. Um, and clearly, we need to encourage people. Uh, to stay in work where they're able to do so. But I think when you're talking about sectors like construction and so forth, I just don't see it as being really viable to have people people doing really heavy, heavy hard labour in their late 60s. Okay. Seamus, uh, you remember the Pensions Commission, which came down at keeping or increasing the pension age, albeit exceptionally gradually, um, 67, 68 in the years ahead. Do you think... The debate now, the government decision is going to go the other way, and and what's your view on the implications of it? Well, like the the, the cost is, is is going to arise. There's no escaping that. Um, our demographics are people are living longer, and the share of people uh, in retirement as a share of population is going to grow. And that's good. Like more life and longer lives, and hopefully healthier lives uh, are better. Um, but if the, the the working lifespan remains the same, um, it does mean additional cost then for for giving people a. Uh, in living standards uh, in their retirement. That's going to cost more. Like the, the implicit assumption here is that we're going to continue to pay the state pension uh, and we're going to maintain it and hopefully increase it in real terms. Um, and that is going to incur an additional cost. The question then is, how do you address that? And I think it arose in the last general election. And maybe the, the intention here is to kick the can down ra- the road at least far enough beyond the next general election uh, and maybe uh, address it closer to the end of the the 2020s or early 2030s. Because as I say, like the, the, the Pension Commission made recommendations, but some of those don't apply until the early 2040s. And um, so this is a long run problem and there still is time to address it. I don't think we're going to lock ourselves into a scenario where things can change, but but the costs are there. And there's no avoiding or, or getting away from that. Uh, and I think one of the issues here is to try and get it off the, the political agenda because we did actually legislate to increase the pension age a decade ago back in 2012, and it was perhaps surprising that it became an issue in the general election of 2020 because it actually was something that had been uh, passed by the Dáil 
and didn't seem to generate much of a, a negative or a, a reaction at the time. And it was only seven or eight years later uh, that we had this pushback. Then that legislation was changed. The, the Pensions Commission set up. And the Pension Commission wasn't there saying that you have to increase the pension age. As Tom said, it was setting out a, kind of a suite of proposals about how you cover the cost. So one way to cover the cost is to try and bring it down a bit to, to reduce the number of recipients, to maintain the payments in, in real terms for those that get it, but reduce the cost by reducing the number of recipients. A second way is to increase PRSI, as Tom indicated. And the third way is to have the exchequer pay for it, get it from general tax revenue. And the more we depend on the exchequer to cover pension costs, the less will be available elsewhere. So if we say the exchequer is going to cover pensions, well, that means less for health, education and other forms of social welfare. So these are all the the choices that are there. You don't have to increase the pension age, but if you don't, you have to find the money from somewhere. Indeed, trade-offs that can be hard to address in today's politics. Final question for you both and maybe a quick answer. I'll come to you first, Seamus. Maybe you're not too worried about this living, living down in Cork, but do you think Metro North should be built? Oh, um, not going to impact me. I think we have a very like a frequent user of Dublin Airport, a frequent user of public transport to Dublin Airport. Like it has very good bus connections. Uh, buses very quickly from uh, the airport to the centre through a tunnel. Uh, that means a trip is done pretty quickly. Does the city and the airport need a, a metro link costing multiple billions? It's hard to know. Uh, maybe we like the idea of, of trains and metal wheels, but, but the rubber wheels seem to be performing quite well at the moment. Absolutely, yeah. Tom, what's your take on this one? Well, look, I, I, I would see Metro North uh, and, and public transport in general as part of the zero carbon transition. I realised the nine and a half billion cost uh, is, is enormous, albeit it is spread over a lot of years. I haven't, I haven't seen any, any, any cost benefit analysis associated with it. And so I, I really wouldn't want to give you a definitive answer without mm-hmm. seeing that cost benefit analysis. Um, whether it actually happens, I mean, we've been talking about this for what, a generation now at least. Um, look, I mean, really what I would say is uh, we have to look at the opportunity cost of doing this versus the, the cost of other capital projects, right? So, so that's that's what I would look at. That. What is the cost benefit, benefit analysis of all of these different things? What comes out best? What comes out second best? And look, what will come out best all of the time will be will be infrastructure projects in Dublin, just because of the population. So, so then you have to look at the regional component as well. So, which isn't answering your question, Cliff, unfortunately, <laughs> because I haven't seen that cost benefit analysis. Yeah, that's but, a fair point. Uh, I do, I do see the merits. I do know it, it is a constant criticism by people coming into Ireland about the ludicrousness, as they perceive it, of not having a link to the city centre. Whether that's whether that's a nine whether that's worth nine point five billion, obviously there's additional gains. It's not just about the airport; it's about getting people into public transport and, and fully, you know, completing that public transport infrastructure for Dublin. Um, now, as Seamus points out, uh, just car and bus as well, and, and look, buses, public transport too. Would that have been more effective? I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I certainly would like to see a cost benefit analysis before I, I would come down on it. Inherently, I would be in favour of such things, but again, you know, without seeing that analysis. Good economist answer, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I think one of the issues is, as you say, that uh, there hasn't been full transparency in terms of the sums behind this. And uh, as the numbers have gone up, uh, it's hard to know where we stand. But anyway, uh, we we'll leave it there for today. Tom McDonnell and Seamus Coffey, thank you very much for joining us on the Inside Business podcast. That's all from Inside Business this week. Thanks to my guests, Tom McDonnell and Seamus Coffey. The show was produced by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. 
From me, Cliff Taylor, thanks for listening and see you next time.